All right, miss the show. No problems on point and on the podcast. How is Harry and Meghan's very public suffering playing out across the pond? Well, his mother's approval? He might not have gotten it, according to the woman who wrote Harry's story. Politicians say they only listen to the science. So why has politics taken over vaccine delivery? We'll talk to one scientist who says the decisions being made are not based on science. And why are Canadians one of the most miserable countries when it comes to the COVID misery index? Let's get talking. I, when we were in Canada, I, I had uh, three conversations with my grandmother and two conversations with my father um, before he stopped taking my calls and then said, can you put this all in writing, what your plan is? Your father asked you to put it in writing? Yeah, uh, he asked me to put it in writing. I put all the specifics in there, even the fact that we were planning on putting the announcement out on the 7th of January. Of course your dad's not taking your calls. You threw the guy under the bus. Of course, happy International Women's Day. I don't get these holidays, but days, but nonetheless, a day I think me and many other women probably experience it differently from our prime minister, who is positively giddy today. Giddy out there giving speeches and all the rest of it with Sophie. And uh, funny, because his talk never meets the walk, certainly when it comes to the treatment of women. I think it's really odd when he gets so happy about these days. He also announced that today, um, that March 11th, will officially be designated day of observance for those who have died of COVID. And I think to myself, it should probably be, you know, designated as the day the WHO uh, were weeks late in declaring the pandemic. Because that's why all the people died, because they were still buying China's garbage. So much to talk about, though, following that Super Bowl of privilege that really has rocked the uh, palace. And I don't know if it really matters what you feel about the Royals. It was pretty much must-see TV. It did not disappoint. And um, it was kind of like a loaded burger with just a, just enough nothing to keep us, you know, wondering what's next. And without question, there is much more coming. And I think Harry and Meghan were pretty masterful, saying only so much, but yet keeping enough ammo if they need to pull it out later. So here, here's my take of the winners and the losers. So obviously the big winner of the night was Oprah. I mean, she had over 17 million people watching. That's not as big as the Super Bowl. That gets about 90 million viewers. But without question, CBS got every cent of the $7 million that they paid to get this. They charged $325,000 an ad, which is crazy kind of money. But um, clearly the Royals were the biggest loser. I mean, some of the... The revelations that Meghan Markle made were simply stunning. Uh, also, very short on details. I don't think, you know, she she um, answered enough of what she needed to answer, but it certainly can't go ignored. I mean, that someone in the family questioned how dark her baby might be is simply uh, gross, if not outrageous. And if it actually happened, then I think the Queen must address it. The problem, and there are many, uh, we don't know who said it. Was it uh, Charles? Was it William? Was it Kate? Was it some distant, drunk royal cousin? I mean, it makes a big difference. 
And I think Oprah, you know, she does a very good interview, but she should have pushed the couple for details because now it's a completely unchallenged allegation that just kind of it hangs out there and paints all royals as racist. And Harry didn't really look all that comfortable that the whole thing had come up. He was very squirmy at that point. And um, Oprah was quick this morning when she was talking about the after interview that it is not the queen and um, Willie, uh, Harry wanted to make sure they knew it was not Prince Philip. But, you know, people here are shocked, but it has outraged the Brits. And no more, though, no more than a seething Pierce Morgan. This is a two-hour trash-a-thon of our royal family, of the monarchy, of everything the Queen has worked so hard for, and it's all been done as Prince Philip lies in hospital. Mm -hmm. They trash everybody. They basically make out the entire royal family a bunch of white supremacists. So, yeah, he, he was none too impressed. They should have just dumped it on Andrew. I mean, isn't he in trouble already for everything else? But uh, it's a big allegation. And certainly in this climate, I think there's got to be some very, very real clarity. Because if it is Charles, then the guy cannot be king. I mean, he's a boob at the best of times. But how can he be king if he said something like that? If he thinks something like that? And so that's why this is a big problem. It lingers and it festers and there's no clarity. And we already know how vile the tabloids uh, have been to Meghan Markle. But if someone in Harry's immediate family, and if it wasn't some distant, you know, fourth generation cousin, then, then, then that person would have to be outed. The other big revelation uh, was when Meghan Markle basically admitted she was suicidal. I just didn't. I just didn't want to be alive anymore. And that was a very clear and real and frightening constant thought. So that was a big bombshell, and, um, but it left me wanting more. I wanted to know what did Harry do? I mean, obviously he said he coddled his wife and held on to her, but I don't understand why he couldn't get her the same kind of help that both he um, William, even Charles got after Diana's death. I mean, there was a lot of um, issues that they all went through and they, they were able to get help. And I also wondered if postpartum depression might have been a factor because this was, after all, after Archie was born. So, you know, with the resources the palace obviously has, I mean, it's awful, if not, you know, kind of impossible to think that no one in the, quote, you know, institution, as she called it, would refuse that help, especially given both Harry and William advocate for mental health issues. And then I wondered, like, where was the queen during this? And Harry and Meghan both spoke very, very warmly about Her Majesty and that they still have a very close relationship, albeit that might be a bit frosty today. But did she know about this? Because it seems to me it would be impossible to believe that she would let Meghan suffer, given they are close. But when you listen to Harry, he said it was at that point that they had to make a decision, they had to get out. And that's when he went to the Queen. She signs off on this this journey that they're going to go off. You know, he would lose his titles and his paycheck would stop, which seemed to surprise him. My family literally cut me off financially and I had to afford, afford security for, for us. Wait, hold, hold up. Wait a minute. Your family cut you off? Yeah. In the first half, the first quarter of 2020. But I've got what my mum left me. And yeah. without that, we would not have been able to do this. Sorry. I have a very hard time getting choked up about this. Um, you're 36 years old. The guy got left 25 million pounds 
from his mother's estate. Okay, that's a lot of money. And Markle has money from a successful acting career. They've already started making tens of millions of dollars in deals for Disney, Netflix, whatever else, Shopify. You know, so that they had to pay for their own security. I mean, there were money concerns during a crushing pandemic. Sorry, I didn't get I didn't get very upset about that. You're 36. Come on, you can do it. Make it on your own. But I think, you know, while the royals certainly are the big loser, I think in the end it's going to be Harry who might be the biggest loser because this story has tons wagging all over the world. In the United States, though, you know, the celebs, they will rally around this couple. And in the U.K., you know, in the U.K., he is now seen as a traitor. You know, he walked away from his country, his duty, his family, namely a brother who he really is who he has after his mother's death. He loses all his military achievements, the honors. And, you know, for a couple that begged and begged for privacy, to be left alone and they wanted nothing with public life, you know, when the dust settles on this Oprah moment, I think Harry might come to regret being so public about the privacy he was brought up to protect. So I, I think ultimately he's going to be the big loser. I got a fascinating interview with the author of a book who um, wrote a book about Harry, spent a year with Harry. She's got a very, very interesting incredible insight into who he is and his life and her response to what diana would have thought about this stunt this is global news radio i just didn't i just didn't want to be alive anymore and that was a very clear and real and frightening constant thought well, that was Meghan Merkel with just one of the many, many bombshells uh, dropped in that two-hour Oprah interview that left a whole lot more questions without answers. And, you know, for a couple who left royalty to find privacy, you know, it's crazy now that they've got the whole world talking. And no question, this will cause many problems for the monarchy while raising questions here about our role in the Commonwealth and if we should remain in it. But when Miss Markle said that shocking statement about the questioning of the color of her child, Archie, neither she nor Harry would elaborate or give names. With a dangling comment like that, which is so, so damaging, it then paints an entire family um, as racist. So is that fair? And while this may be shocking, and these things may be shocking in the United States, where many will side with Ms. Merkel, what she and Harry said will certainly not play the same in the United Kingdom, where these comments are going to be, no doubt, seen as a betrayal. Angela Levin is author of Harry, Conversations with the Prince, and she probably has a better understanding of this than most of us. She joins us now. Good to have you, Angela. Hello, thank you for All right. Asking. They promised it was a no hold barred, nothing was off the table. Um, did, were you surprised with what was revealed? I was totally shocked. Um, I'd expected some sort of minor revelations and lots of moaning and groaning how hard done by they were. But mm. I was absolutely, I couldn't speak for the first um, nearly hour because I couldn't believe what they were saying. Um, the privacy of everybody had been absolutely destroyed. And I'm not quite sure for what purpose, unless it's revenge. Okay. And so uh, just from the start, I mean, she admitted, um, and I don't know if she's ever Googled royalty or that, or when she and Harry were dating or courting, if he didn't explain to her, but she admitted she was naive to what she was getting herself into. Um, and I'm not sure how you could be, shocked by 
that role. I mean, she had to have known that her life was going to be completely changed. Well, interestingly, she actually said in the interview that she never looked Harry up and she never looked at what the job was involved, which is a funny way of describing it because it's not a job, it's a lifestyle. You have Mm -hmm. to throw yourself in all the time. You're part of this incredible, rather creaky machine that is there to support the Queen in her work in the UK and the Commonwealth. It's not a job. You can't think of it in in nine to five time, uh, time space. Now, interestingly, when I spoke to Harry, he told me that he had spent a lot of time with Meghan before uh, they got engaged, explaining in great detail what she could and she couldn't do. Um, He'd been ditched by other girlfriends because they didn't like the spotlight and they were anxious about what was involved. But Meghan wanted it at the engagement interview on BBC TV on the day they announced uh, their their engagement. Uh, She said she's ready to be part of the team. The, the word the team is, is a favourite of Harry's, or at least was, that all the royal family together as a team. It's a sort of military thing he took into the royal family for himself to, to think it through. And she was very keen and she said she was fine and they were going to do great things together. Um, so that's Harry's role. Um, once she was married, the Queen very generously, I thought, let her have for a year one of her most reliable um, aides who had worked for her for 17 years. And she, her role was to help Meghan settle in. Mm-hmm. And um, also uh, there was a, um, a, a Ghanaian uh, major who became also an assistant to the Queen. And he was there to help Meghan being a black man in a white environment. Um, So I can't believe that people didn't tell her what it was going to be like and helped her. My information is that she didn't want to be told what to do in any area, even if she didn't know about it. And she obviously didn't take any of it in. And so how is this being received in the United Kingdom? I mean, it's obviously being met with a lot of shock in the United States. And certainly there are a lot of questions here in Canada as to, you know, if we should even be a part of the Commonwealth, which has been a debate for for, for a while now. But um, while I felt it was, um, you know, disrespectful to the Queen, who I have a great um, admiration for, um, how are Brits seeing this today? Well, there's a a wide range of opinion, as there always would be with something like this. But there are some people who are absolutely appalled. You know, they're they're living in a a great manor with 16 toilets and they've got huge deals with um, uh, Netflix and Spotify. They found each other. They're supposed to be in love. They've had one child. They're having another one. Not necessarily easy for women in their late 30s. And... um, Everything's honky-dory. They wanted freedom and they found it. So why are they complaining? Here we are in the UK, still housebound because of the pandemic. Um, The Queen is nearly 95 and she's trying to reach out to citizens to say, I'm here for you and to thank the people on the NHS and health service um, 
for all the other hard work and dangerous work that they're doing. Um, meanwhile, she's obviously worried about Prince Philip, her husband of um, 70 years or more, who is seriously ill in hospital. And here they are moaning and groaning. I think many people are disgusted, but she does have fans. And some of them think that, um, you know, the royal family should be crushed to dust and, and Meghan could very well do it. So the comment, um, and there were a few comments that um, got people talking, but certainly the comments that were made about Archie, that someone in the family had questioned, you know, what about the colouring of the child? Um, and Oprah came out on American TV today and said, well, it is not the Queen and it is not Prince Philip. And so the problem, and there are many with this, is that we don't know who said it. And Harry made clear he was not going to talk about it, but that, that means you've got an issue um, highly controversial, highly offensive, and highly troubling that's just left out dangling. And so what's the royal, um, you know, what does the monarchy do now? Well, it's a very difficult one. I, I think that the person who did it was obviously totally and utterly wrong, but we don't know if he, she was a member of the royal family, a brand new um, young uh, employee, or someone in the middle. And I think if you attack something like that and you bring something like that up, it's very wrong to imply that it's the that it damages the whole royal family because nobody knows. And as you say, it's dangling there. And what do you do with it if they're not going to tell anybody? And Harry seemed extremely embarrassed mm. to mention it. I suspected he didn't he didn't want that mentioned, but obviously Megan did because it's very sensitive for her. Um, uh, and that is why Oprah came out and said it wasn't the Queen or, or the Duke of Edinburgh. I mean, that was a big statement from her. She obviously saw that people were absolutely shocked and wondered if they were accusing the Queen or, or Prince yeah. Philip of doing so. And right. And had to stop to that. Yeah, I mean, it's very, I mean, he, he could pass away at any given moment, certainly, and to, um, you know, have his reputation besmirched by this would um, cause more than, than just problems. But, you know, he talked about uh, Harry saying that he hasn't talked to his father. It's clear that his relationship with his brother is strained. I don't think it's going to be made better with the comments that, uh, you know, Kate apparently made his wife cry. So she's been thrown under the bus. But he does talk about having a very warm and close relationship with the Queen. And, and Meghan Markle also said she has a, a good relationship with the Queen. What happens to that now? And, and if Prince Philip should pass, do they go to that funeral? Yes, well, that um, that we don't know. I have a feeling that Harry would obviously come, but Meghan would not. I mean, we wouldn't know how far she is uh, in her pregnancy. Right. And right. having uh, sadly had a miscarriage, she might not want to risk it anyway. But I think it would be very stressful for her to be amongst people that she, she didn't like. And, and the British feeling is that she doesn't like any of us. You know, we're too small a country for her. And she's interested in more global. But but back to this, um, I I I think it would be very embarrassing um, for for her to be there on on everybody's side. The relationship between Harry and William, I think, is incredibly sad. They were very mm -hmm. very close. And Harry said to me, William is the only person he can really trust. They can say anything to each other, and they are. 
um, they have very common and very, very ghastly traumatic experiences when Dana died and the difficulty of, of being a member of the royal family. But now, Harry says there's got to be space, which means there's emptiness, sure. nothing. Yeah. And let me ask you this then, because how do you think Diana would have seen this? She had her own shocking moment in her interview that kind of blew open and, and caused quite a scandal with the royals. How do you think she would have um, felt about this particular interview? I think she would have banged their heads together and said, don't be so silly. She brought them up to be very close. She, Because Harry was the spare to the air, as it were, she made sure that she counteracted that by making him feel tremendously loved. She didn't want him to feel inferior. And mm -hmm. both one of the rare things that she and Prince Charles agreed on was that both children had to be brought up with an incredible sense of duty and a willingness to work within the monarchy. It was very, very important for Diana. And that's just not happened. So I think she would be very, very disappointed and upset. Yeah, it certainly didn't, um, I don't think, help um, with her talking about mental health illness. I mean, these are causes that William and Harry have spent a lot of time, a lot of investment in, and it seemed counter to what they have done with their life, um, raising awareness certainly for that. But it's shocking to think that no one would get, you know, her or anyone else help. Um, but, you know, when it comes to moving forward and where this goes from here, where does this go from here in, in your mind? And, and you have spent a significant amount of time with Harry. Do you think he'll come to regret this? Yeah, I don't know. You know, what you do because the one you love tells you that you have to help them do this, To you know, they want to do it together. And what you think in a few years' time when the gloss has just calmed down a little bit and um, he will miss out on so much within his family you know, mm -hmm. birthdays, um, military parades, all the things that he loves and grew up with. And he adored the military. He's desperately mm -hmm. sad that he, these have, um, have been taken away, he can no longer be patron of. But it's, it's slightly naive because you can't live 5,000 miles away and actually be of value. Um, and the Queen made it very clear a year and a bit ago that um, you're either in or out. I suspect he might feel very sad about uh, what he's done. Not that necessarily that he's moved to America and is by the sea and the weather's warm and all that, but that he has upset members of his royal family, which they didn't really deserve. No, and certainly I would think the Queen likely not impressed with what happened because um, she ultimately wears this. The crown. Yes. Yes, yeah, she does wear the crown. She's also not a micromanager. What does she wanted? She adored Harry. They have a very similar sense of humour and mischief. And the Queen's a marvellous mimic. And she would make Harry laugh with all her uh, mimicking different people. And they were very close. And she felt very sorry for him uh, because the loss of his mother was, was huge. Uh, it was for William, but, you know, the younger one... Um, it, needs a bit more cuddles and, and yeah. care. Um, and, Is there any way, Angela, that she wouldn't know of all these problems that, uh, you know, Megan said she was going through? Is there any way the Queen would be out of the loop of, of these mental health challenges and, and wouldn't have been able to step in? Well, we don't know 
about the mental health challenges. I have to say that I find it um, unbelievable that she couldn't get help. We have to remember that Prince Harry sought psychological mm-hmm. help in his early 20s when he was overcome with grief and depression when thinking about his mother. Prince Charles had also yeah. that sort of help when his marriage to Diana failed. He recommended various uh, experts to help Diana with her mental health problems. Um, as you just mentioned before, William, Kate and Harry set up a, a royal foundation on which uh, the basis of mental health um, was very, very important. The, also, the royal family is surrounded by first-class doctors and specialists. So I can't work out why Harry couldn't phone the person he went to, couldn't mm-hmm. have asked one of these doctors, or coughed up with some money just to get her help. Um, it's tragic that she felt like that, and no one should feel like that. But I can't believe it's because um, someone in the institution, as she called it, uh, said uh, she, it, would, it would affect the institution if, if they did anything. I can't believe that for a second. Well, stay tuned, Angela. I'm sure this is not the end of it, and um, I guess we'll see where this goes. But I do certainly appreciate your time and your insight, given that you've had such a close connection and you have a different view from the rest of the world. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Angela Levin, she authored the book Harry, Conversations with the Prince. And uh, so she probably has a better understanding of this, I think, than a lot of people. But boy, oh boy, we have not heard the last of this. This is Global News Radio. So with the Trudeau government, the province is changing guidelines of vaccine deliveries. Are we being used as guinea pigs for political gain? And since the start of this nightmare, our politicians have been adamant that they are listening to the science and all the best medical advice, which then begs the question, why are they changing dosing rules when it comes to vaccine delivery? And I'm talking specifically to the second shots of Pfizer, Moderna and AstraZeneca, which have now been delayed up to four months, which is what is way beyond the 21 days as suggested by the manufacturers. And we're the only country in the world doing this because right now we don't have enough vaccines. So is this a political decision or is this one based on science? Dr. Brad Waters is Executive VP, Science and Research at Toronto's University Health Network and a senior scientist at the Princess Margaret Cancer Centre. Very good to have you. Nice to be here. On March 3rd, you tweeted, quote, this is way outside of NASI jurisdiction. There's no data. Nobody in the world has been four months between doses. These are RNA vaccines never used before. We should use evidence to make decisions. Canada's conducting a population-level experiment. That is, um, I think, some of the most blunt talk we've heard yet on this, because I've been questioning, where is the data on this? Yeah, well, there, you know, to be perfectly frank, there just isn't any data yet. Remember, we only started giving these vaccines two months ago. These are brand new vaccines. And while we have them here in Canada and, and throughout the world at a time frame that's really unprecedented, um, they, they are new vaccines and we're, we're still watching the data as it comes in. Health Canada approved these vaccines based on the manufacturer's directions, and Pfizer came out as early as Thursday or Friday and said they're not going to endorse any province that lengthens the time between first and second dose, uh, dosing. Dr. Fauci has coming out and says that second dose on time is crucial. So why is Canada then such an outlier? Yeah, well, clearly the decision uh, that NASI made last week is around weighing the risk-benefit ratio between 
getting more doses to more people early uh, versus, um, you know, the potential risk of delaying that second dose out for four months. And in medicine, you know, we like to practice medicine on the basis of hard evidence. That's why we do the clinical trials. That's why we take our time. We do them carefully. We spend time, you know, analyzing that data before they get approval. And in this case, the clinical trials were done a certain way. They were done with those two doses spaced three weeks apart, and they were incredibly effective. And I think that's why you hear voices saying, you know, we should deliver the vaccines under the the conditions which they were tested, which we know they're extremely effective. And, and so what would your biggest concern be? Is that because politicians are concerned about delivering on a particular date that we are now playing with this? Well, I think it's, you know, the demand is, is really there. The population wants to see the vaccines. We don't have enough of them in this country at the moment to give it to get it to everyone. And so, you know, the recommendation that NASI is making is not based really on data. The fact that, you know, we know that they're still effective at four months. Um, it's looking at the, the option of, of trying to get more people vaccinated early versus what is a potential risk around the four-month time. We don't really know, you know, how effective the one dose will be over a period of four months. We don't know, you know, how that four months is going to affect how good that second dose response is. And there are lots of smart people on, on the committee and, and lots of, you know, immunologists, um, you know, looking at the data, looking at our experience with vaccines in the past and saying, you know, we expect the dose to be still effective at four months. And, and they may very well be, you know, 100% correct. It's just that we don't have the hard data uh, to back that up at the moment. And, and, it, and, and we are introducing some risk around what could happen with, you know, millions of Canadians partially vaccinated for a period of four months. And, you know, the bottom line is Canadians want vaccines, but we also want them done right. And so, you know, they're taking a risk, it seems, something is better than nothing. And my concern, and I think others would be, you know, that viruses are smart. You know, they can build a resistance. So if we all just get one shot, uh, what if the virus then builds a resistance and then we have to continue to go through this? Yeah, well, there's some concern there, you know. So what we have seen with one vaccine is that there, it does offer protection. Um, it will prevent a lot of people from, you know, getting COVID or getting sick from COVID. Um, but there is a risk, you know, there is a risk that, you know, in elderly people or in other immunocompromised people where that one shot is not going to be enough to protect them. Um, this could be a breeding ground for variants and for, you know, people who become infected and, and aren't able to resolve their infection. That's one of the concerns that have been raised by, by immunologists. Um, we don't know, you know, it's, it's, it's like we say we're in uncharted waters here a little bit. We don't know that. Um, Canada is a little bit out on its own here. It's the only country that's proposed going out to four months. The UK, you know, from the beginning has been um, administering their second doses at three months. And there was a lot of concern and criticism and discussion there as well. Um, they're out front of us so we can learn from them. And, you know, I do expect that NASI and, and the other regulatory bodies will be watching what's happening as data comes out of the UK and, and other jurisdictions. And, um, you know, if we need to, we potentially can update that guidance and, and change course on, on the way as well. 
There's a lot of distrust out there, though, even those who are pro-vaccine, just based solely on the speed of which these vaccines have been made. And so there are a lot of people that even, you know, normally they'd be like, let's go, let's get her. But there are people, I think, asking um, relatively, you know, easy and simple questions, straightforward questions, and they should be able to ask them. My concern, I think, and the concern should be of the political decision makers is that if they start playing with this kind of stuff and the world around us is not seeing to be doing the same thing, you're going to get a whole lot more more distrust, and then a whole lot less people get vaccinated. Yeah, I mean, this is probably my biggest concern, too. You know, right now we're dealing a lot with the fact that there's lots of people out there that want a vaccine and can't get it. And this is super important. But, you know, what might be even more important this summer is, you know, all the people who decided not to get it, you know, the vaccine hesitant and, you Mm -hmm. know, people are raising questions like that. And we should be doing everything we can to build confidence, to build trust with the, with Canadians. Um, you know, these are incredibly effective vaccines. Uh, they were tested through rigorous, well-done clinical trials. And the mixed messaging, you know, that's happening now and the different recommendations and the changing, you know, all of this, um, you know, rightfully um, builds some questions around uh, for Canadians. And, and I certainly hope that this is not going to impact, you know, the number of of those that decide that they shouldn't get it or want to wait because the vaccines really are our way out of this. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, we all want to see as many people get vaccinated as soon as possible. Do you think this is a mistake? Well, I I, I was surprised by the, you know, by the recommendation. NACI typically is a body that, you know, weighs evidence and, and, and often is conservative in their judgment of the evidence. Um, you know, what I'd like to see, I guess, is a little bit of the process, the sort of the risk that they don't see it going to four months versus the benefit that we see by getting uh, those in, uh, vaccinated early now. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it's, um, it's something that we're really only going to know looking backwards. It's, uh, you can make conjectures and predictions and, and base it on science going forward. But, you know, unfortunately, it's the data that's going to reveal what the actual truth is here. Yeah, transparency is key. Doctor, I appreciate your insight into this, and um, we'll chat again. I appreciate this. Thanks, Alex. That is uh, Dr. Brad Waters. So there you go. Uh, They may be talking points to the politicians, but if they want people to buy in, then they've got to do this right based on science, or then be honest and say, we're not doing it on science. It's because of politics. Can't have it both ways. Stay with us here. Alex Pearson on point, and this is Global News Radio. The lockdowns are lifting finally after 140-some-odd days, making us all feel a little bit better. But when it comes to COVID, who actually wins the misery award? In other words, what country feels or is showing the worst misery suffered over the last year? And it's interesting because the McDonald-Laurier Institute dove into this subject, weighing the disease misery response, the economic misery we've suffered. And out of all 15 countries that they looked into where Canada, you know, Norway, New Zealand, Australia, all these countries that kind of share the same situation, Canada came in near the bottom in 11th place. We got a grade of C. And this is despite the fact that our disease misery wasn't as bad as many other countries. But when it comes to other things, we didn't do very well. Richard Otis is Professor of Health Statistics and Economics in the Faculty of Medicine at Memorial University in Newfoundland. He's the lead methodologist on this particular justice report card. And COVID-19's kept him in New Zealand with his family since February 2020. So, you know, Richard, shame on you because you're a very happy guy, according to your own reporting. 
Well, it's, yeah, thanks for that, Alex. Yeah, Hudson, <laughs> and thanks for having me on. It's been it's been uh, really interesting actually to to be down here in New Zealand as we as we kind of walk through this, and 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 of course looking upwards on the at the, what's going on in the rest of the world and seeing how the experiences have been very different across countries, and and you know, and we've largely spared from here from the worst, you know, the, the ravages of the disease. Um, although, you know, we, uh, you know, certainly different strategies played out and, and, and kind of, you know, to some extent helped make that possible. But yeah, it's been, you know, really fascinating to look at the numbers and, and see, you know, to some extent the numbers bear out largely the things that we thought happened. Uh, in some cases, there, you know, a, a few surprises as well. And, and, and certainly, you know, it needs to cha- need to change our thinking a little bit as this disease evolves. And now we're really at the, uh, I hopefully think we're at the sort of, you know, the kind of winding down stage, the light, you know, there's sort of light at the end of the tunnel. Um, but that tunnel is, is rather longer for, for some countries as opposed to others, and, and certainly the U.S. and the U.K., which, you know, were certainly, um, you know, ravaged by the disease far more severely than a lot of other countries, including Canada and New Zealand, uh, have really, uh, you know, sort of ramped up their vaccine campaigns. And that's really, you know, you know in, in those countries, you know, they're talking about having a normal summer, which is, you know, which mm-hmm. is pretty exciting for them and, and probably well-deserved, to be honest, given what they've been through. Yeah, I mean, we're just starting to get into the time of year where, you know, the sun's staying out a little bit longer, it's getting a little bit uh, warmer, so that does give Canadians hope. But we, you know, when you look at the report that you did, you know, we've suffered less death than a lot of the other countries on the list, and including the United States, but that ranks above us. They rank above us. So why are we more miserable? Yeah, I mean, I think that well, a couple of things that, that really jump out for Canada, I mean, and it really it, it boils down to the, the Americans, uh, you know, have really been crushing it on vaccines. And, um, and you know, and that's, you know, and that's been a huge, a, a huge swing when we look at, at, at the overall numbers. And, you know, I think, you know, it, it, certainly the pandemic has hit harder there. Um, but they're looking, you know, things will, will be normal there before they are in Canada. And that's, you know, certainly been a big factor. Um, the other thing, and, and this is, you know, a measure of, of, of the stringencies of the lockdowns, and, and, and the U.S. wasn't quite as stringent, obviously, how they locked down. Now, that certainly had, you know, not there's certainly all kinds of public health debates that we could have about whether the lockdowns were too stringent, not stringent enough. Um, we probably mm-hmm. locked down more severely in Canada than, than they did in the U.S., and then there was certainly, you know, obviously a lot of discussion around that. Um, but, you know, I think that, you know, that when we look at the numbers, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's, it probably caused them to have, you know, higher outbreaks of disease, but you know, it did mean a little bit more personal freedoms through the pandemic uh, in the U.S. than than we had certainly had in Canada. Yeah, and civil liberties are certainly in play. I mean, Australia, New Zealand, uh, you you guys were willing, um, and I should say, you know, you're Canadian over there, but, you know, they they were willing to give those up to get rid of this. Canadians haven't been as willing, and there's been a lot of pushback over things like masking or staying in a a quarantine hotel, Um, even though I look at the totality, and I'm surprised at some of the things that Canadians have rolled over on and just accepted. Yeah, it's been interesting to say certainly here the, 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 the public health message and the message from government was uh, here in New Zealand was, was a short, sharp lockdown. And uh, we, yeah. we basically had seven weeks where everything was locked down. And there was very little ambiguity in terms of what, you know, what you could do and what you couldn't do. And, uh, you know, assuming there was no takeaway restaurants, there was no hardware stores open. Basically, if you were a grocery station, a pharmacy or a, you know, a gas station, you could be open. Otherwise, you were closed. Um, even sort of corner, even convenience stores couldn't be open. So, I mean, you know, so it really meant that everybody was locked down and that, that seemed to work. Um, I think, you know, when I've looked at what's happening in other countries and even my home province in Newfoundland, which is going through, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a lockdown at the moment. And even then there's, you know, there's still, you know, appears to be, you know, uh, some ambiguity about what's, you know, what's, uh, what's possible, what isn't. Uh, and, I, and I do think people will sort of push the boundaries. And, and I think that's, uh, that's certainly slowed, um, you know, the, the ability to, to close this disease off quickly. 
Yeah. I mean, we've done things since the beginning, I think, here kind of halfway at every level. No one really wanted to take draconian measures. It was like almost every level of government wanted to put in the rules enough to make it look like they were doing something. And I think that is a big reason why we're you know, still kind of upside down and backwards here, um, certainly in the province of Ontario and, and Quebec. Uh, you know, it's very frustrating yeah. for people who just want to move on and feel like they've done their part. But then the other area, which is really interesting in your study, is when it comes to the economy. So the economic impact yeah. and the response put us way, way down the list. And the bottom line is we have spent more than any other country and still the, the you know, the trade-off, I don't think a lot of Canadians see as being worth it. Well, it's, I, I guess that's, that's, that's for individuals to decide. But at some point as taxpayers, we're all going to be responsible for this. And, you know, it is, you know, and, 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 I, and I know I recognize in a time of crisis, you know, there is a need to make sure that, you know, that people can keep putting food on their table and keep their lights and, and heat on and everything. And that's crucial. But I think at some point, you know, there, there needs to be a bit more of a nuanced policy here. And, and I think, you know, what, what, looking at the data, the way we've looked at it shows that, you know, not every country spent the way that, uh, you know, that, that Canada has and, and not, you know, and, and countries didn't sort of fall into complete economic ruin or, you know, or see people starving in the streets or, you know, freezing to death in their own homes. Uh, you know, th- those sorts of things didn't happen. Um, so, you know, I do, you know, I am concerned um, that, you know, that we've, you know, we've racked up a pretty significant bill here. And, you know, and that's going to have to be paid off at some point. And, and you know, and certainly, mm-hmm. um, you know, the uh, you know, concern that, you know, that there's going to be emergencies in the future, whether it's an economic emergency, whether it's a climate change emergency, whether it's another you know, health related emergency, we're going to need to borrow money again in the future. And, and I think we've limited our capacity to do that. So it is, you know, it is, it is pretty worrying um, that, you know, that we have taken on all this debt. And it is something that, you know, I think that, you know, we, when we look at when we go back and kind of do the, you know, review of what, what, what worked, what didn't, you know, I, I think that will be something that, that came out that maybe, you know, maybe we could have been a little bit more um, strategic, um, a little bit more targeted uh, in how we provided funds to, to people to keep things going. And this, you know, I recognize in an emergency, you know, you're not going to get things exactly right. But, you know, I think we've had, you know, a year now to, to kind of play this out and, and, and maybe, um, you know, maybe target things a little bit better. And, and, and hopefully, you know, as, as we'll say do something to to keep the, the public purse and the, and the public, you know, expenditure, you know, a little bit more in check. As I say, you know, it's, it, is, it is worrying how much additional public debt we've taken on. No kidding. There's a reason the Liberal government is not tabling a budget in under two years. So uh, that's probably the reason why. Uh, Richard, appreciate your time on this. Appreciate you joining us from such a far distance and um, wish you very well and thank you. No, thanks very much, Alex. Really appreciate the, uh, the opportunity. That is Richard Honest joining us here. And so let's hope that we can turn that misery around and maybe get some happiness going now that the warmer temperatures are coming our way. You, of course, can join us Monday through Friday starting sharp 630. I'm Alex Pearson. This is On Point on Global News Radio.